Let me ask you now to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 3, as we continue a series of messages on the biblical foundations for change. That is, ways in which the Lord transforms us into his image, and we are thinking about the goal for change is the life of Jesus himself. The power for change is nothing less than the grace of God. The tool for change is, are the scriptures applied to our heart by the Holy Spirit. And the battlefield of change is the heart's rebellion against God or idolatry. And then we will look at the process of change. But today we're focusing on the source of change or the power for change. Hear now the word of the Lord as I read from Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? This is God's word, let us pray. Father, we pray that you today would be faithful in your ministry to us by your spirit, that you would open up our eyes so that we may behold the truth, that we may see it in all of its beauty, that we may see the glory of Jesus, and by beholding him, you would change us more and more into his image. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. And so today, we're looking in a series of messages on biblical change. We're looking at the source of change, which is counterintuitive to the max, God's grace. And grace is one of those slippery words. It's one of those words that are really, really difficult for us to grasp and hang on to. But we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about a number of other things. But I want you to note off the top uh, the following quote by Richard Lovelace in his book Renewal. He says this, Drawn as we are by a vision of a God-centered life, but confronted by such formidable obstacles as the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are most likely in our human nature to turn first to works for spiritual growth. We are convinced that being spiritual is going to be expensive, and it's going to cost us tons of effort and willpower. So we give ourselves pep talks and cheer ourselves Onward with, let's just, now this isn't Lovelace, this is me. You'll tell the difference immediately. <laughs> so we, we give ourselves little pep talks. 
And uh, we cheer ourselves on. I've got to buckle down. I've got to tighten up. I've got to knuckle down. I've got to hunker down. I've got to root hog or die. I've got to become a Nike theologian. Just do it. Or I've got to become an Avis theologian. Just try harder. But the problem with these theologies is that they suffer from a severe spiritual blindness regarding two very key perceptions. The first one is, it overestimates our strength and underestimates our weakness. Our flesh is weak. Our strength is not limitless, but we are weak people. We need spiritual power. You know, most of the time in the Christian life, it isn't a matter for those of you who have been listening to me for the past 15 and a half years. It's not that you don't know what to do. You do know what to do in the main. The problem is, where do I get the power to do it? Where do I get the want to? Where do I get the heart? What is it that's going to bring transformation in me and change me in the struggle. Where do I get the power? And so we overestimate our strength and underestimate our weakness. And second, this kind of theology achieves through effort and willpower alone. It does not receive through faith. Sanctification, in one sense, is as much by faith as justification is. And this issue is precisely Paul's pastoral concern in this letter to the Galatians. It is also true that when one looks in the ministry of, at the ministry of Jesus, he never looks for moral achievement in us, but rather faith in himself. And that's a hard thing to unlearn. It's a very difficult thing. But Paul finds himself in Galatians 3 starting out by calling the Galatian church foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians. Phillips in his translation says, Oh, you foolish idiots. That's a little better, but not much. What he's really saying is, and this is in the original Greek. He is saying, you bunch of knuckleheads. That's what he's saying. You bunch of knuckleheads. How could you be where you are right now? How could you so rapidly move from a position of looking outside of yourself and keeping your eyes focused upon the beautiful person of Christ who he is, what he's done for you, and you've retrogressed right before my eyes. How did you get there so quickly? When I was a little boy, I knew I was in trouble when my mother called me by all three names. She would say, William Timothy Posey, come in this house. And while I was walking in the house, I was thinking of the 10 or 12 things that she could possibly bring up that I had done. <laughs> and so I was sweating it out. And usually when I got in the house, it never was what I thought it was going to be, and I'd breathe a sigh of relief, and uh, she would address the situation. So Paul is trying, you know, somebody has says Galatians is really Romans, except Paul is really ticked off in Galatians. 
He's, he's really upset with his church because they're in a perilous position. They are in a perilous position of deserting the gospel and turning toward another gospel, which Paul says is no gospel at all. Anytime a relationship with God is based upon works of the law or willpower or trying harder or doing my best, it is moving away from the power source of the Christian life, the grace of God. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He's addressing a church. And they haven't gone there yet, but it's close. He's speaking to a congregation who has been bewitched. The concept of bewitched is casting an evil eye on someone. Evil eye. Now, there are people who still give you the evil eye. But he's saying it's it's as if someone has cast a spell upon you. It's as if somebody has totally deceived you. So it's an unflattering address. At the same time, it was tough love confronting a very dangerous situation. Interlopers, the Judaizers, law-driven false teachers had invaded Galatia with a gospel that was not good news at all. Why? Because it depended upon our doing and not our resting in what Christ had done. They believe that you weigh, the way you deal with a lawless antinomian culture of new converts was to rigorously apply the law. The makeup of the Galatian church was mostly Gentiles, and they were not at all like the Jews. They were a little rough around the edges, like a motorcycle gang coming to Christ. And so immediately these false teachers came in and flooded after Paul left and said, we got to clean these people up. we got to straighten people out. And here's what most people believe. The way you do that is you give them the law. You tell them this is what the law says. And now that you're a Christian, you have the power to keep it, so keep it. Here's the law. What you guys need to do is to become circumcised. And Paul comes in and says, the law has no power in it to change anyone. The law's good, it's righteous, it's true, but it can't empower. It can never empower you to do what it commands. And so they had short-circuited their power by listening to these interlopers, these teachers that came from James uh, in Jerusalem. And I, uh, I know that Paul took his gospel to the church in Jerusalem to, to uh, sort of get the approval or the stamp. And now this group had come in and they wanted to rigorously apply the law. They assumed from their worldview that the law would fix or suppress the flesh and holiness would be a result. Paul says their thinking could not be more flawed and wrongheaded. But then he turns, if you will, look with me uh, in the second part of of verse 1. He said, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. I'm going to talk about that in in a moment. But Paul knew that these Galatians had demonstrated a genuine experience of receiving the Holy Spirit and were now on the way to retrogressing back from a spiritually empowered life to a life of flesh. 
They were moving from faith to works, from grace back to law. They were opting for a new center of gravity. They had exchanged the liberty and freedom of the gospel for the bondage of the law. And Paul had zero tolerance when it came to tampering with the gospel. Listen, folks, you can't add anything to grace and still have grace. The moment you add, if it's 99.999 dot to infinity, it ain't grace. It's got to be 100% pure. And these people were robbing this church of that. Paul is saying that the Galatian church was in danger of being seduced. I read uh, a 2008 survey. Nobody has the courage to take it now. But a, a 2008 survey of fundamental evangelical beliefs that were taken in 2,000 years ago. Listen carefully. 84% of evangelicals embrace the saying that God helps those who help themselves. That's in the book of Hezekiah, isn't it? <laughs> right over there by the verse it says, every tub sits on its own bottom. Isn't that where that is? It's not in the Bible, but 87% of evangelicals believe that that's true. 77% believe human beings are basically good at heart and that good people go to heaven regardless of any relationship with Christ. 50% of ev evangelicals um, believe that self-fulfillment is the goal and priority of life. 50% either reject or have a difficult concept accepting the concept of absolute truth. Somebody has gotten into the Galatian church and is misleading the church just as today. At work is the father of lies, and the church must always guard and protect the teaching ministry of the church. Paul had publicly and graphically portrayed Christ crucified to the Galatians, and now they were moving away from the purity and heart of the gospel. They had been bewitched and lost sight of what should be central to the gospel, Jesus himself. And so, he says, very odd language here, that Christ was portrayed before your eyes. It cannot mean that the Galatians literally saw Jesus or anything physical, for later on he refers to his preaching as being what you heard. So what does Paul mean? He, uh, we try to translate the words as clearly as we can, but generally what he means is I I placarded Christ. I put up like a billboard and I vividly and graphically portrayed him as crucified, not with art, drawing a picture, but with the art of words as I preached Christ and him crucified to you. It was a graphic display. It was something to see spiritually and to hear spiritually. That's what he's getting at. He wasn't there giving a dry lecture. He didn't simply enunciate principles, but he painted a picture of Christ, giving the hearers a, uh, a, a, 
moving view of who Jesus is and what he had done for us. On the other hand, Paul refers to the eyes, probably conveying to us that conversion happens when information about Christ dawns on us and awakens us. I hate to use this phrase, but I'm going to use it. Christians are woke people. We have been wakened up. Now, do we take any credit for that? No. We were spiritually dead. I mean, we weren't out in the lake going down for the third count hoping somebody would rescue us. We're dead on the bottom, spiritually speaking. And until God's Spirit comes into the deadness of our heart and he breathes life into us and resurrects us from the spiritual death, that's what he's talking about when he means receiving the Spirit. The Spirit regenerates us. He recreates us. He makes us new people, new creatures in Christ Jesus. And he gives us a whole new set of desires a whole new set of loves, a whole new apparatus to see as it were. I mean, before Jesus, we were as blind as a blindfolded mole in a cave. You do know that moles are blind, right? You ever had moles in your yard? When I lived in Louisiana, we'd go to bed, and the window to our bedroom was right next to the yard, and you could hear them at night. They were gambling and playing poker and smoking cigars. No, they, they were busy digging. And so I'd go out and look at my backyard the next morning and I got ridges all over my lawn where the moles have been working, blind as they are. But that's what we could see and could see. Have you ever shared the gospel with a person and you really felt in the moment that you were communicating the truth as clearly as you possibly could and that they were nodding and going along with you and then you ask them one question and you say, well, if you were to die at this moment and you were to ask the Father, or the Father was to ask you, what right do you have to enter my heaven? And they would say back to you, I've lived a good life and done the best I can. And you go, they didn't see it. They didn't hear it right over the top the reason you or I or anyone else receives the uh, spirit of God is God graciously comes to us Paul says we know that God has chosen you in 1 Thessalonians 4 he says we know that God has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but with power with the Holy Spirit and deep Conviction. He also writes to the church at Ephesus saying that you need the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know the hope and the riches of your inheritance and the power that resurrected Christ from the dead. Paul is praying here for more than intellectual knowledge when he speaks of the eyes of the heart. He's looking for a sense of these truths upon the heart, a grasp of them in our central core. That our whole person, mind, will, and emotions are changed. So a Christian is not just someone who knows about Jesus, but one who has, as it were, seen him upon the cross. Our hearts are deeply moved when we see not that he died in general, but that it was taking our place that he died for us. 
And when that knowledge grabs, uh, grabs a hold of your heart, it changes you. And so we see the meaning of his work for us. We are only saved by a heart-moving but rationally clear presentation of Christ's person and work on our behalf. Second, the Galatians received the Spirit. They began with the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit enters the life and comes through the belief in salvation by grace alone through Christ alone rather than trusting in our works that is anything we manufacture, attain, achieve, or do. Paul says you receive the Spirit by believing, and that's what the new birth is is directly and connected to believing the gospel. That's why Jesus can say we're given new birth through the Spirit in his conversation with the Pharisee in John chapter 3, but also James and Peter can say we're given new birth through the Word of God. So they are indivisibly linked. The Spirit does not work apart from the gospel. In Romans 1.16, Paul says the gospel does not bring the power of God, but it is the power of God. And so the gospel is how the power of God comes to us. It is the channel and form of the Spirit's power. So when the heart by faith receives the truth, we begin a new spiritual life. We're converted by faith and uh, we are not converted by faith in God in general or some sort of spiritual experience of a vague sort or by su subscribing to doctrinal truth in general. We are converted, spiritually reborn, when we hear the work of Christ expounded to us. We are awakened and convicted that we've been seeking to complete ourselves through our own work and we transfer our trust from our works to Christ work. We stop relying on anything we have done to make us right with God. And we start completely relying on what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And that is coming and becoming incarnate and living a perfect life and fulfilling the law in every measure. And he did that not for himself but for us because we can't. And he went to Christ, I mean to the cross, and died, receiving the punishment that all our lawlessness and sin brings. And so once we see that and grasp that, and we look outside of ourselves, we're saved. We're justified by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. And that's how we're saved. And so that's what Paul is telling this church. But he says... You believed what you heard, and in verse 2, he does this. He clarifies by seeing a relationship to two other phrases. In verse 2, believing is contrasted with observing the law, and in verse 3, beginning with the Spirit is parallel to verse 2's believing, while attaining through human effort is parallel to observing the law. Therefore, to believe the gospel is not merely to assert, uh, assent to the assertions about Christ, but to stop attaining. 
So we have to look at attaining in order to understand what saving faith is. John Gerstner used to say, it's not so much your sins that will send you to hell. It's trusting in your damnable good works. And he was right about that. When Martin Luther preached the doctrine of justification by faith, it went over like a lead balloon. Not a lot of people really grasp it. One of the people who didn't get the doctrine of justification that we are pronounced righteous and are, and are saved solely by faith in Christ without works, the Duke of Saxony heard this teaching and he complained that it was a great doctrine to die by but a lousy one to live with. The Duke recognized justification by faith is the great comfort in death. It guarantees where the sinner stands before God's throne, all his sins are pardoned. Instead of having to defend his life, the sinner will be defended by the life of the crucified Christ. But Duke George wanted to know what he was supposed to do in the meantime. If a sinner is saved ultimately by God's grace rather than his own works, how and why should he live for God? And Paul's answer in Galatians 3 is that justification is not only a great doctrine to die with but a wonderful doctrine to live by from beginning to end and so Paul really focuses on his first time there when he clearly presented the gospel to them and they were drawn to that and uh, God had accomplished a great deal for that and so as we have just said Attaining through human effort is parallel to observing the law. The Greek word for human effort is sarki, which means the flesh. And we see the exact same comparison in Galatians. Living in the flesh is the same as trying to earn God's favor through keeping standards. What is the goal? Since in verse 3, the opposite of begin with the Spirit means the final goal of the Christian life, namely, to be perfect and to be perfectly loved for God. And so the word Paul uses for attaining your goal, completion, is describing our normal course of life. We're all striving to complete ourselves. You know, I hate that when I'm watching a movie and some man says to some woman, you complete me. Now that might be romantic to some of you, but the theologian in me dies a thousand deaths when I hear that. No person on this earth can complete you. Now I'm sure it's a wonderful sentiment in the time, but you complete me, why? Because you make me feel good. Well, that's all about you, not me. Or I feel like a better man when I'm with you. Again, self-centered. But what we're all striving for in this world, every single person you meet, in different ways are attempting. We know we're not whole. We know that shalom, a sense of well-being, a sense of wholeness, a sense of peaceful existence was vandalized in the fall. And so everyone's walking around striving one way or another, to complete themselves. And there are only two ways you can do it. One is called flesh, and the other is called spirit. And Paul is saying, why in the world are you turning back to the flesh when you have the power of the spirit that you've already experienced? You dear idiots. Why are you doing that? Well... <laughs> 
And so we believe rather than observing the law or trying to attain completion, thus we became Christians, when we became Christians or before we became Christians, we trusted various projects of personal effort to make us feel complete. But to the believe in Christ is to enact a revolution in what we trust for our sense of completion or perfection. Which makes me think of this familiar hymn line. Lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone. Gloriously complete gloriously complete and so in verses 1 and 2 Paul has reminded this church that the spirit entered their lives through the vivid depiction of Christ's work and abandoning of self-trusting efforts to complete themselves and make themselves acceptable before God then in verse 3 he comes to his major beef with this church and the circumcision party he says the way the spirit entered your life is the very same way the spirit advances your life and he says it twice strongly first in verse 3 beginning in the spirit are you going back to human effort put another way he is saying having begun with the spirit through trust transfer, you're now trying to grow through some other dynamic. It cannot be. Christians think we're saved by the gospel, but we grow by applying biblical principles to every area of our life. But we're not just saved by the gospel. We grow by applying the gospel to every area of life. Some Christian discipleship that leads out the grace of the gospel only creates what I call Pharisees with low standards. And we got enough of them in the church anyway, don't we? I mean, I'm a recovering one. I go to meetings every day with myself about my Pharisaism. I mean, there's nothing I preach to you about that I myself have not been a Pharisee with low standards. Okay. Now, we're about to get there. If you can help me get up this hill. In verse 5, notice, Paul is even stronger. He moves into the present tense, and he says that right now, the works of the Spirit, even miracles, occur because you believe. Not that because you believe and because you uh, and because you no longer observe the law, this does not mean, of course, that Christians are not obeying the law. What happens to us is we get a new relationship with the law. In the hands of the flesh, the law kills us. In the hands of the Spirit, the law becomes something beautiful, something we desire, something we want to do, something we see the beauty in and grieve over not doing because the law is summed up by loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself, and we as Christians want to do that. And the law drives us back to Christ. And we rest and relax in him. And through that rest and relaxation in Jesus Christ, an enormous power of grace infuses our hearts and moves us toward greater obedience. But we always get the cart of law and works ahead of the horse of grace. 
I'm talking about the Christian life here. I'm not talking about just your initial coming to Christ. I'm talking about the Christian life. So he says, it means, what he means here is that the Spirit works only as because Christians are not relying on works attainment and are consciously, continuously resting in Christ alone for their acceptability in completeness. I remember Jesus speaking to the disciples one day in John's Gospel. And he was talking about going to the Father. And he's, he's talking about works. And he says, greater works than these will you do when I go to my Father. And they said, well, how do we do the works of God? And what does Jesus say? Get out there and get after it. Strap up, buddy. Get out there and get after it. Discipline yourself. You know, knuckle down. Really put forth effort. No, Jesus said the way you do the works that equal or exceed the works of the Messiah is to believe on him he has sent. Wow. That's hard for us to quantify and grasp, isn't it? Believe. Believe. Stop attempting to attain. So Paul is warning Christians. It's easy to fall back into works righteousness in order to try to overcome sin and live the Christian life. Now there are always these people who want to run around and balance things. And I have all kinds of respect for balanced truth. But you need to hear this side. I'll present another side if you give me time and I live that long. Next week, I'll talk more about what our responsible participation is in sanctification. But until you get this, I guarantee you, you will have no power. You will be a joyless, lifeless, depressed, muddling, struggling believer until you understand where the power comes from. And this is where the power comes from. Paul says it here. Look at verse 5. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you, present tense, all in the present tense, do so by works of the law, by hearing with faith? And the right answer is by hearing with faith. For example, we should not simply say, you know, Lord, I have a problem. Uh, I'm a person who gets angry at the drop of a hat. And I go to my knees and I say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm angry and I know that anger is wrong and it's selfish. Give me the power to stop being angry. How many of you have ever prayed something like that? A lot of us have prayed stuff like that, right? We have. What happened? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Why? Because we're only hacking at the branches. And we're not getting down to what the root of the problem is. And the root of the problem is a whole lot more than asking Jesus to take your anger away. Using Paul's paradigm and his understanding, uncontrolled bitterness and a lack of spiritual power comes from the flesh. From not believing the gospel and from somehow seeking to complete ourselves with self-trusting efforts. It means that though I began with Jesus as Savior, something now has become my functional Savior instead of Jesus and I am trusting in that more than I'm trusting in him. 
Instead of believing that Christ is my hope and goodness, I'm looking to something else to hope in or some other way to make me feel good and complete. And so when I get angry, it's usually because there's an idol in my heart. Let's say an idol of approval. I want people to think well of me. I want people to think I'm a good man. I'm a spirit-filled, godly, persevering man. Whatever adjectives you want to throw out there. And I'm driving to an appointment. And uh, I realize I'm going to be late. And I can't stand being late because what will the person waiting on me think if I'm late? So I'm driving and some knucklehead cuts me off. And I lose it. Little road rage happens. And I begin to make all kinds of signals at this person. And I get, you know, none of them are like, hi, how are you? Have a great day. <laughs> and I get really upset. And then my wife's sitting over in the rider's seat going, he's probably got a gun. Slow down. <laughs> if you ever see us talking in a car, it's usually her saying that. No, not always. We're praying sometimes with our eyes open. But here I am trying to get to work. And why am I so angry at that person? Because they slowed me down from getting what I really want. And what I really want, I want people to like me. I want people to respect me. I want people to think well of me. And if I show up late, then what? You see, that's how you apply the gospel to your anger. I don't get my feeling of well-being, my sense of completion from human approval I get it from the one who matters the most who says in the beloved you are accepted I have the acceptance of the one who matters most and if I can believe that I'm not going to be sloppily late but I ain't going to kill 10 people trying to get there do you understand that that's why you get angry sometimes now I could go on and on with every one of the works of the flesh and show you how Every time you do it, you're believing a false gospel. And that's how power from cha for change happens in us. Now, you need to listen faster so I can get through. All right. In verse 4, and this seems a little out of kilter. He says, uh, have you suffered so much for nothing or in vain if it really was for nothing? Uh, the word suffer here can mean... Suffer, as we talk about all the time, suffering, persecution, or hardship, or difficulty, or opposition. But the word suffer can also mean experience. And I agree with J. Gresham Machen here, which puts me in stellar company, right? Or he happens to agree with me, which makes him, no. Anyway, <laughs> Machen argues that what Paul is saying is, Look at your life experience. Now, Paul grounds his gospel as chapter 3 continues to go. He doesn't ground it in human experience. He sort of starts at the existential pole of truth, your own experience, and argues the question. But then he moves us to Abraham and gives biblical proof for what he's saying. And then he continues on in Galatians 3 to talk about Christ becoming a curse for us. Uh, by hanging on the tree so he continues that but here he's talking about your experience and he's saying to these people look at yourselves when did you experience spiritual power well the gospel Christ graphically portrayed when do I lose spiritual power when I take my eyes off Jesus 
Is it that simple? Yeah. The hardest thing you will ever do in this life is keep your eyes focused upon Jesus, looking unto him, the author and finisher of our faith. But that's where the power comes from. Now, let me close. Paul has said, since you received the Spirit as a gift and not as a reward for achievements and attainments to complete yourself, since you've been saved by what you heard with your ears and not what you've accomplished with your hands, have you gone stark, raven, mad, bat crazy? The question cuts to the heart of the potential we all have for abandoning the gospel. They had begun well, but now they had turned uh, back to a different gospel. Next week, or maybe the week after, I don't know which, I'm going to talk about the spiritual life can't exist in a vacuum. Because if you aren't attempting to complete yourself with the gospel, then you're going to turn to other gospels. And I want to talk about some of the ways which I, as a believer, have attempted to complete myself rather because I'm not focused upon the gospel. And it's very interesting to see that. Have you ever wondered why churches got to always come up with something new? Always got to have the latest and greatest? Always got to be in the fad? You know, I mean, I'm not wearing a tie now. I'm starting to give in. But it was cool for a while to sit on a stool. You had to have, you know, a, a little beard, and I'd grow one, but it's white, and nobody could see it. Um, and you have to wear big, thick glasses, you know, look at, like an intellectual. And you have to have a cup of coffee and stand in an iPad and just be casual. Why do you have to do all that? You wouldn't have to do all that if you just believed the gospel. See... We're creatures that run after everything to complete ourselves, and we have it in Jesus, everything our heart longs for. So, Paul's op opponents argued that his gospel of Christ and him crucified was simply entry-level 101 stuff, insufficient for higher spiritual realities and the deeper things of God. You know, what the deeper things of God are. They're the stuff that makes you a nerd, usually. But uh, the, gift of the, <laughs> the gift of the Spirit was merely an initiation into the Christian life, which is vacuous and incomplete until one is perfected by obedience to the law. And so Paul warns that this view of spiritual fullness is in reality a step backward into the negative fleshly sphere of self-justification and works righteousness. All attempts at higher spiritual life apart from despairing faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is going backwards. Paul says we go on in our spiritual life the way we began the spiritual life by the hearing of the gospel, by the gospel doing what the gospel does in us. It creates faith. It gives us spiritual power. We do not obey the works of the law in order to receive the spirit or power of the Spirit. We receive the power of the Spirit who enables us to fulfill what the law requires, which is love. 
I've run into some legalists before. Been one too. And they're the meanest people on planet earth. Just mean. Just mean. And um, I can remember legalists jumping on me about something. And I said, well, is that all you can come up with? Because I'm a whole lot worse than that. And he didn't seem to think that was funny at all. <laughs> he didn't enjoy that response. Kind of like Spurgeon when a woman was on him about his cigar habit. He smoked cigars a lot. And so after worship one day, she said, I can hardly listen to you anymore, Mr. Spurgeon, knowing that you smoke cigars. And you know what Spurgeon said to her? He said, moderation in all things, ma'am. That's what I believe, moderation in all things. She said, what is moderation? He said, only one cigar in your mouth at a time. <laughs> so there are always people, <laughs> well-meaning though they may be, that get on to you about any freedom you may enjoy and uh, want to drag you down to where they are in the slew of despond and misery. But anyway, uh, the last guy that did that to me, I just took him aside and I tried to be gentle. You know I'm gentle. And I looked at him and I said, you know what uh, the law is, don't you? He said, well, sure, it's in the Bible. I said, well, what did Jesus say the summary of the law is? And he said, well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I said, I'm not feeling the love. I'm not feeling the love from you, brother. And I will admit, we all have to learn how to do that. But we receive the power of the Spirit, which enables us. The greatest miracle that has ever occurred in our lives happened without our assistance or effort but was received by faith alone. Do you think you're going to go on to fullness through self-reliant obedience to the law? Faith is as crucial and central to your sanctification as it is for your justification. They're all by grace alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use this message today to show us where we can get the spiritual power to change because it's not so funny when we look at ourselves and we see stuff in us it's just eating our lunch it's just defeating us it's whipping us and we feel so powerless and we feel so empty and we feel so discouraged and we feel depressed and we're just struggling and having a hard time and I pray you would help us to see Jesus graphically portrayed as crucified and empower us through your spirit to stop trying to complete ourselves through attainment and to rest in the one who said come unto me all you who labor and are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest I pray that people would come to Jesus today and continually come to Jesus today. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, we do pray that as we give, we will do so with joy because our eyes will be fixed upon what you have given and what you have lost to have us as yours. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.